Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 masterpiece Vertigo is adapted from a novella D'Entre la Mort, or From Among the Dead, written in 1954 by Boileau Narcissac, a pseudonym for not one, but two French crime authors, Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcissac. And just to complicate matters even more, Narcissac was not his real surname. No, it was Arrault. The fact the novel has two authors, one of whom adopted a new name may be strange, but in exploring the film, it might appear unexpectedly apt. Briefly, Vertigo tells the sorry tale of retired detective Scotty Ferguson. Played by James Stewart, Scotty suffers from a fear of heights. Contacted by an old college friend, Gavin Esler, played by Thomas Helmore, Scotty reluctantly agrees to keep an eye on Esler's wife, Madeline. Madeline, played by Kim Novak, has become fixated with a dead woman named Carlotta Valdez, who died by suicide more than 100 years earlier. What Madeline doesn't know is that Carlotta was her great-grandmother, and Esther fears that Carlotta's ghost is possessing his wife, all to the point that she may end up taking her own life. As Scotty spends his days following Madeline around San Francisco, he begins to fall in love with her, and things get more complicated when she tries to drown herself in the bay. Fell into the bay and you fished me out. That's right. Thank you. You don't remember? No. Told like that, Vertigo sounds utterly absurd. An implausible premise developing into an improbable plot, leading to an utterly inconceivable ending. And that is how a lot of critics reacted when the film was initially released. However, in the decades since, Vertigo has come to be regarded as not only Hitchcock's greatest film, but according to a 2012 BFI Sight and Sound survey amongst critics, it is the greatest film of all time. Certainly, in the hands of a lesser director, the film would not have survived. So how has it survived? What is in it that people now see that those critics didn't? Here is David Fincher, whose own films, Seven, The Game, Fight Club and Gone Girl, bear Vertigo's imprint. If you think that you can hide what your interests are, what your, what your prurient interests are, what your noble interests are, what your fascinations are, if you think you can hide that in your work as a, as a film director, you're nuts, you know? And I think that he was one of the first guys who said, I'm gonna go with it. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be, I gotta be me. Certainly Hitchcock was a very complex man, and as repeated viewings of his films reveal, they are far more complex and layered than was initially assumed. Here is Martin Scorsese. Over the years, we kept watching it again and again, and I think it has to do with the character. I think it has to do with the obsession of the character. And it's something that, you don't, it doesn't matter, the story doesn't matter at all. You'll watch that film repeatedly and repeatedly because of the, the way he takes you through his obsession, and the kind of man he is in that film. Um, uh, therefore, it's a picture, I think, that of Hitchcock's that is one of his greatest, if not, if not his best, because you can keep watching it and watching it. It's always new because you go through that journey with him in his own soul. Here is screenwriter Samuel Taylor, one of the two writers who adapted Boileau Narcissac's novella. There has never been a director like him. Never in the history of films. I mean, as an observer. He was always everybody in a film. Part of his greatness is the fact that he was all his characters in a film, and he was also the camera. And uh, Hitchcock is the only man I can think of who actually was the camera. 
Although Hitchcock regarded Shadow of a Doubt and Rear Window as his most fully realised films, there can be no doubt that Vertigo is his most personal. Certainly, the film is a near-complete compilation of all his other works. As Hitchcock's career matured, his themes and tropes became evident, and Vertigo displays quite a few of them. Throughout almost all of his films, there ran the MacGuffin, the element that Hitchcock somehow convinced the audience was important, but in actual fact was little more than a distraction that would allow Hitchcock to explore something deeper. By which I mean a theme. I'll come to Vertigo's themes in a moment, but for now, let us look at some of the motifs within the film that occur elsewhere. The film opens with Scotty dangling from a great height, which echoes moments from Young and Innocent, Saboteur, Foreign Correspondent, Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. Vertigo climaxes with Scotty and Judy climbing a staircase, and such a location calls to mind scenes from Jamaica Inn, Suspicion, Stage Fright, Shadow of a Doubt, Notorious, The Paradigm Case, Strangers on a Train, I Confess and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Another motif is the case of mistaken identity, which occurs in The Lodger, The 39 Steps, Young and Innocent, Saboteur, Spellbound and The Wrong Man. There's been a number of hold-ups in this neighbourhood, all pulled off by one man. Certain people have come forward with descriptions of that man. And it's been brought to our attention that you fit the description. I fit the description? That's right. Of the hold-up man? Yep. That's crazy. That's crazy. Sure. Well, from what you say, this whole thing's a big mistake. In Vertigo, it is not Scotty who is mistaken for someone else, but he who makes the mistake of thinking that Madeline is, well... Madeline. Hitchcock also featured birds in many of his films. You have seagulls picking at a dead body washed up on the beach in Young and Innocent. Foreign Correspondent opens with a curious conversation about our feathered friends. In Spellbound, a dream sequence features the shadow of a bird chasing down Gregory Peck. Rear Window contains two brief but knowing appearances. Look closely and you will see pigeons on the roof of the apartment belonging to Miss Torso, as well as one of the other tenants across the courtyard who has a bird cage which she is forever moving about her apartment. Another bird cage turns up in To Catch a Thief when Cary Grant takes a seat on the bus and the woman beside him has one sitting in her lap. North by Northwest doesn't have a bird but it does have an aeroplane. And in Psycho there is a collection of dead birds in the back office of the Bates Motel. And that is not to mention the birds. So where are the birds in Vertigo? You may feel I'm stretching it here, but it is the name of the man who instigates the entire plot, Gavin Elster. Elster is the German word for magpie. No? Well, just remember that in Psycho, the female lead is called Marion Crane. And then there is Hitchcock's obsession with doubles. In Psycho, you have Norman assuming his mother's identity. In Spellbound, John Ballantyne assumes the identity of a Dr. Edwards. In Rear Window, every person L.B. Jeffries sees across the courtyard is a double for either himself, his girlfriend Lisa Fremont, or his relationship with her. In The Wrong Man, Manny Ballestrero is accused of a series of robberies precisely because there is a doppelganger somewhere in New York committing the crimes. In North by Northwest, Roger Thornhill assumes the identity of CIA agent George Kaplan. Does anyone know this Thornhill? No, not me. 
Never heard of it. Professor? Apparently, the poor sucker got mistaken for George Kaplan. How can he get mistaken for George Kaplan when George Kaplan doesn't even exist? In Vertigo, you have more doubles, which sometimes double up themselves. To begin, there is Madeline, or rather the woman pretending to be Madeline, who appears to be possessed by the ghost of another woman, Carlotta. Madeline spends hours staring at Carlotta's portrait in a museum. When yet another woman, Midge, learns of the portrait Madeline is staring at, she decides to create her own version of it. Only Midge decides to paint her own face into it instead. But beyond the characters doubling up, there is also the repetition within the plot. Carlotta is alleged to have taken her life by suicide. Madeline, or rather the woman pretended to be Madeline, pretends to attempt the same thing, only for the real Madeline to appear to take her own life. Her fall is then repeated, only for real, by the other Madeline at the end of the film. And all throughout that, Scotty tries to rescue the woman whom he believes is Madeline, and having failed, he then tries to remake that other woman into the original Madeline's image. Only she isn't the real Madeline. She has already been remade by Esler in the image of his own wife. As implausible as Vertigo's plot is, it just might be Hitchcock's greatest MacGuffin, allowing him the time and space to explore something deeper. There are several themes that run throughout Vertigo, not least of which is the theme of looking. Scotty is a detective, and so he is expected to see things we don't, and thus put together the pieces to make up the mysterious jigsaw. But Scotty so utterly fails to do that, perhaps the theme isn't so much looking as not seeing what you're looking at. The film's credits show us a close-up of a woman's face, and then the view tightens on her right eye, so that it all but takes up the entire screen. And then the film's title emerges from her eye, and is deliberately positioned to divide it or cut it in two. The final credit is Hitchcock's own, and he makes sure his credit is the only one that repeats that position. I believe that is a reference to the opening sequence in Salvador Dali and Luis Bunuel's surrealist masterpiece, Un Chien Andalou. There, a woman's eye is sliced open by a razor blade. As shocking as that image is, it is not without meaning. The action was an assault on the very organ we need to engage with cinema. Dali and Bunuel were saying, do not trust your eyes. Do not believe all you see. So. While we are looking at Scotty, looking at Madeline, we believe what we see, as Scotty does. Only, neither we nor Scotty see the truth. Madeline. Madeline, where are you now? Here with you. Where? Those trees. Have you been here before? Yes. When? When were you born? Long ago. Where? When? Tell me. Madeline, tell me. No. Madeline, tell me what it is. Where do you go? No, what I can't takes you tell away? You. When you jumped into the bay, you didn't know where you were. You guessed, but you I didn't, didn't know. Jump. I didn't jump, I tell you. Why told did me you I jump? Fell. Why did you jump? No, I can't tell you. Why did you jump? What was there inside that told no, you to jump? Please. What? What? Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. Some 17 years after Vertigo was released, British film theorist Laura Mulvey published her landmark essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. In it, 
Mulvey cogently argued that cinema prioritises the male perspective, to such an extent that women were not only the subject of a man's look, women were rendered passive objects within the male gaze. Vertigo appears to be a perfect example of this. However, as the years have rolled by, new truths have emerged. Vertigo may not reinforce the male gaze. Instead, it might be a critique on the male gaze. More than any other Hollywood film before it, Vertigo undermines its hero to the point that he fails to fulfil his task. So perhaps the film is about failure. The film's final image has Scotty standing helplessly on top of the bell tower. So perhaps the film is about impotence, masculinity in crisis. There is one other motif that Hitchcock enjoyed which I haven't mentioned. Dreams. Rebecca opens with the lines Last night I dreamt I went to Mendeley again. Spellbound boasts a surreal dream sequence that Hitchcock devised with Salvador Dali. And then you have Rear Window. L.B. Jeffries begins and ends the film and spends quite a time in between, either falling asleep or waking up. And early on in Marnie, the title character is in the throes of a dream so disturbing, she calls out to her mother. No, I don't want to, Mama, no. Marnie, wake up. Marnie? Don't make me move, Mama. It's, it's too cold. Wake up, Marnie. You're still dreaming. Get washed up. Supper's ready. There is, of course, a dream sequence in the middle of Vertigo. But there is a theory that the final third of the film, including its climax, is a dream. Directly after the inquest into Madeline's death, Scotty suffers a breakdown. He is so traumatised by his failure that he is rendered all but catatonic, and the rest of the film plays out in his head, a fantasy in which he contrives an improbable conspiracy, all in an effort to explain away his failure. Only he fails so completely that even within his own fantasy, he cannot rectify it, which explains why he fails yet again at the end. An interesting idea, but I prefer the theory posited way back in 1965 by Robin Wood. Wood was the first writer in English to do a serious evaluation on Hitchcock, and it was he who hinted that all of Vertigo is a dream. Or at least it is from as early as the fifth minute. Scotty is hanging by his fingertips from the gutter. The police officer who has tried to help him has already fallen to his death. And with Scotty looking down at the scene, Hitchcock doesn't show us Scotty being rescued. There is no one there to rescue him. But instead, he simply fades to black. In 1890, American author Ambrose Bierce published a short story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, in which Peyton Farquhar, a Confederate soldier in the American Civil War, is about to be hanged. But at the last minute, he wrestles free from his executioners and escapes back home to his wife and family. But just as he enters the plantation, he feels a blow on the back of his neck, and we realise that Farquhar only dreamed of his escape, and the whole thing has played out in his head as he falls to his death from the hangman's trap. If that sounds like a bit of a stretch, consider this. 
Hitchcock was so aware of Bierce's story, it is an American classic, that he had it adapted for his television show in 1959. Added to that is this. The cover page to the very first draft of the script reads, Vertigo from Among the Dead, adapted by Samuel Taylor and Ambrose Bierce.